0: Edward Habsburg is the Archduke of Austria and Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See. He is the author of books on Thomas Aquinas and James Bond, uh, among other topics. His new book is The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. And that is our topic today. Welcome, Ambassador Habsburg. Thank you
1: very much for having me on the show.
0: First question. What brought Prime Minister Viktor Orban to write a foreword? for this volume.
1: That was great to see. That's a very good question, Mark, especially because it put him into some sort of dilemma. The Habsburgs in Hungary, by a part of the population, are still seen as something like oppressors, especially the elder generation. So once he had decided mm-hmm. he wanted to write the foreword, I could almost feel that he was in the dilemma what to write. And I was, I was certain that his foreword would be a kind of defense why a street-fighting guy like him uh, would write a foreword about the Habsburgs. And of course, as he has this strength of words, what came out of it was an incredibly dense, historical, poetical reflection about the complicated relationship between the Hungarians and the Habsburgs. Beautiful. It's beautiful. And it it, it ends with a very positive last line. Um, I mean, we have... We've had our difficulties over the centuries, but now Hungary has two Habsburg ambassadors, uh, one at the Vatican and one in Paris. So that is quite something. But, uh, but it's a special thing, this forward, very special.
0: I, I think, you know, you can see him acknowledging the, the ambivalence there in Hungary with the Habsburg. I think he handled it quite well uh, while we, with the acknowledgments, but, uh, but we see, yes, we, we're in the 21st century now. And one can see elements of the Habsburg Way certainly uh, thriving in in Hungary. Now, one of the things that he asserts in that introduction is that only through Christianity will Central Europeans preserve their identity.
1: Do you agree? Oh, wow. Do I ever agree? I'm in the luxurious position of agreeing with what my government says on most things. Uh, the diplomats don't always have this luxury, but I do have it. The great thing w- when I was writing the book about uh, Habsburgs, the Habsburg way, was that the more I wrote, the more I realized that I, I write about uh, principles that correspond to what, what, what Hungary is trying to do in many, many details. I think that if we don't want to get swept away <coughs> By the tides of this time, it only will be possible through Christianity. The point is, conservative values don't survive on their own. Uh, A country won't remain conservative if it's just based on conservative ideas. You need a bedrock of faith under that, or it will be blown away, washed away.
0: I think that history is showing this. Uh, Secular uh, conservatism... Maybe we should call it a libertarianism cannot stop the encroachment of identity politics of of this woke revolution passing passing through. You've got to have something more than this world to to do it. And uh, I, I think it's nice that you really go way back in time and you're framing a lot of your contentions about the present through. These important figures in history. So it's it, the, the book isn't just a reflection of present times. It's a really good story. It's a it's a genealogy, an uh, uh, of an extraordinary one of the extraordinary uh, uh, families of of uh, medieval and modern times. You start with the history of your family. Why don't you just tell us when and how did the Habsburgs begin?
1: Well, we we began as far as we can trace it, a bit before the year 1000. and, um, and the, But the first time that we made a big blip in history was in 1273, when um, Rudolf von Habsburg was elected uh, the first king of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the electors, after 25 years of interregnum, of a time without emperor, of a time of chaos and lawlessness, had decided to, uh, to elect a harmless elderly count from the corner between Switzerland, Germany, and France, and to be sure that he would never fund a dynasty uh, that, would, that, would, that would sit on the throne for centuries. Were they ever wrong? Hmm. Um, but um, <laughs> that was... And, I, and this, this uh, what I understood preparing this book is that why are the Habsburgs so strong on marriage? Why are the Habsburgs so strong on subsidiarity? Because the Habsburgs never had the luxury of ruling over a single nation with one language, which usually is a temptation to become a nationalistic, b um, to take neighboring countries. The Habsburgs never had the luxury. From mm-hmm. the first time on, it was an incredibly complex balancing act between different uh, languages, different nations, different systems of law, different. Um, everything was different. And the emperor had to juggle between these things keep them all uh, working, be just, be, uh, be the supreme uh, judge about these things without having any power. So it's the contrary of what we imagine tyrants to be. The Habsburgs had to do this and the way to do it was through alliances and the way to do it was through marriage. And that's, I think that's the story of the Habsburgs. In a nutshell, in Rudolf in 1273, all the elements were already there. Also the faith. Rudolf uh, began with a famous story where, where, he, where he offered a priest um, his horse. Uh, who, the priest was bringing the viatic to a dying man, and he offered his horse to cross a swollen river. And when the, the priest on the way back wanted to give the horse back, he said, far be it from me to sit on a horse again that has carried my Lord. And this was a strong gesture and a grandiose gesture of faith from one of the earliest Habsburgs. And this story goes on until to the last emperor, who was a, a, a humble giant of faith, as I say.
0: Well, is that actually, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, is the certain professions of humility a consistent motif in the Habsburgs? I think it is. this a value? Yeah, I think it is.
1: I think it is. I think the fact that the Habsburgs, this is the last chapter of my book, Die Well... I think the fact that the Habsburgs were always having one eye on their death because they were Catholic and they knew that the way they lived, the way they lived their faith, the way they did their duty as emperor, but also the way they were going to die was to decide about their eternal life. The Habsburgs never were in danger of becoming crazy, maniac, uh, giggling, cackling uh, emperors, but there was always an element of deep humility. I think the, the, the moment where we see this best is, you know, half of the world population watched the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. And um, there was one very touching moment when her coffin slowly disappeared into, into the floor, to the crypt in the castle. And they read all her titles. And I, I laughed in, in, inside because I compared this in my head to the Habsburg knocking ritual. And this is so poignantly different because... It's not about the titles. The point of the way the Habsburgs enter their crypt is to show that the titles don't count. I, I tell this in the book and you can watch it on YouTube. There is one or two videos of it on YouTube. Uh, the coffin of the Empress, Zita, I was there when this happened, gets carried to the, to the door of the crypt on, on the uh, Neumarkt um, in, in Vienna. And the master of ceremony knocks on the door And the voice of the Capucin priest inside says, now who's out there? And then they begin to read her titles. Uh, uh, Zita, Empress of Austria, uh, Queen of Hungary, etc., etc., etc. And they say, we don't know her. And then afterwards, knock again, (coughs) then they read her achievements, don't know her. And then uh, Zita, a humble sinner, and the door opens. I mean, you cannot look into all the hearts of all the Habsburg rulers, but they had one eye on their death. Always, always, all their lives. And that helps to be humble. It will keep you mm-hmm. from thinking that you are the bee's knees, as our English friends say.
0: Mm-hmm. In those first centuries from, from Rudolph onward, what, uh, I mean, Holy Roman Emperor, what were the relations between the, the emperors and the
1: successive popes? Well, in theory, you couldn't be emperor without, uh, without the pope. Um, in fact, in the first centuries, only very few emperors were uh, anointed by the Pope and crowned by the Pope. And there were very complex relationships. I just have to, just have to point out what happened between the armies of Charles V and, uh, and the city of Rome in 1527. Um, and of course, if we go further on in Habsburg history, uh, Joseph II... Uh, had a, a very memorable encounter with a pope. Uh, that was I, I'm I'm very I'm not very very proud of my ancestor. Uh, the pope uh, learned that Joseph II was closing monasteries left, right, and center, and basically closing and destroying all contemplative monasteries because they were useless to his enlightened thinking. And the pope made a trip from Italy, came up to Austria to beg to beg the emperor to stop doing this. And he received him, they had several masses. it was all very nice. And then he, he said goodbye to him, and when the Pope left again, he closed the monastery where he said goodbye to him. Uh, so that, that shows that not all Habsburgs were devout uh, friends of the Pope, but, but Blessed Karl, for instance, was one of the few people to accept the, the call of uh, Benedict XV for peace in the First World War. So we have a long, long history with papacy. I think it was Ferdinand I who suggested, or the second, suggested the feast of uh, St. Joseph. So, you know, there's a long history of the Habsburgs and the papacy. But uh, on, on, in general, we, we have very good relations with Rome and the popes.
0: You move forward to the, the big discovery and exploration of the new world.
1: How did that
0: affect the the Habsburg Habsburg rulers.
1: It's, of course, the famous uh, empire in which the sun never sets. Uh, You have to understand that the Habsburgs between 1470 and 15-something, in very few years, in the lifetime of Emperor Maximilian, went from a family that was basically set in Austria, uh, Bohemia, Hungary, to very shortly after that, Belgium, Netherlands, then Spain, and with Spain, the world. And uh, I, I make a list in my book of all the places that uh, Spanish Habsburgs were somehow mm-hmm. responsible for, including large parts of South America, several of the states uh, of the United States. Now, of course, I, I w- always consider always consider uh, Texas, Florida, New Mexico are old Habsburg mm-hmm. states. The first governor, <laughs> yeah, the, that, first, that, governor of, actually the first governor sp- of Texas was put there by the Spanish Habsburgs. Um, so it's <laughs> an enjoyable yes, section. Yes, 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 I, yes. I, I, I mean, that's one of the main topics is surprisingly how close some of the ideas of the United States and of the Habsburg monarchy are, which you would never say the democracy in, in itself and uh, tra- traditional absolutist, etc. monarchy. But there are, there are ideas that you have in common. So that was at the time when the Habsburgs spanned the world. There was never that much money coming in. I once read in one of the books that all of the money that came in from the New World yearly was about, I think, a fourth of what the French king had at his disposition. So it wasn't that much. It was just hmm. very showy. For instance, the ceiling in the... Um, I was there in Santa Maria Maggiore two days ago. I was in Mars and while, during Mars I looked at the ceiling and it's shining and sparkling golden. That was given by the Spanish Habsburgs with the first gold that came from the New World. So that, that, hmm. gave, that gave the Habsburgs um, 150, 180 very exciting years. Uh, to be mm-hmm. after the end and death of the Spanish line and the loss of Spain thrown back into their, their, their central European basis uh, with, with neighboring countries. Yeah.
0: 1848 was, as we know, the big year of revolutions, How did the Habsburgs fare in those upheavals?
1: This is a very good question to put to a Hungarian Habsburg because, um, you know, the Hungarians celebrate 1848. And it's one of our national holidays. And on that date, they wear a kokarda, uh, which is a Hungarian flag in form of a kokard. and, uh, And when I wore this for the first time, the Hungarians who met me said, this is crazy, you can't as a Habsburg wear this. And I said, oh yes, I can, <laughs> because uh, my ancestors, the Hungarian branch of the Habsburgs, were on the side of the Hungarians against the Vienna Habsburgs. Um, my forebearer, Archduke Stephen, sided with the revolutionaries from Budapest and brought their demands to Vienna. So I can, I can sort of see both sides of the coin. Um... I can also see that uh, while Franz Joseph, when he he became emperor as a very young man of 18 years, in order to calm the waves of the revolution, uh, promised quite a lot of liberties uh, to Hungary and the surrounding countries. And then saw that the empire was breaking apart and then cracked down hard Mm. and for about 10 years ruled with an absolute fist. Uh, before slowly opening again and in 1867 finally building that balanced new uh, Kauka monarchy, um, you can understand him too. You can understand that this is all going to pieces if I don't clamp down hard on the Hungarians. And they did it by calling the Russians. Um, this is also something hmm. that I very often say when people think that Hungarians are um, allies of, uh, of the Russians or something like that. I always say when you ask a Hungarian what they they think about the Russians they say do you honestly think that we totally trust the Russians after 1848 and 1956 so um there is a history here but 1848 was indeed a moment where where the monarchy could have gone to million pieces and uh, and and Franz Joseph cracked down hard in the end it balanced out and and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and monarchy in the last um say 50 years was something fantastic. Looking back, many people say doomed, doomed monarchy the last years. And, but uh, modern historians say this is not the case. This was a vibrant and working monarchy, uh, very balanced. And let's just make this little mind game and think about what if the car with Franz Ferdinand and his chauffeur wouldn't have stopped and turned at the point where he did in Sarajevo, but just one road beside mm. it. Uh, Gavilo Princip would Mm. have never had the chance to fire that second uh, shot. Franz Ferdinand wouldn't have died. Franz Joseph would have died two years later. There wouldn't have been a First World War. Franz Ferdinand would have become emperor, and he would have taken the Slavic people in. And uh, there would have been a good chance for the monarchy uh, to survive a long time, let alone no, no, uh, no First World War, no Second World War, no Holocaust, no Hitler, no everything. So, you know, these little games that one shouldn't play that historians say you don't. I'm, I'm just trying to say what the Habsburgs did in the Austro Hungarian Empire was the ultimate antidote against nationalism, aggressive nationalism. It was the project to have peoples live together with respect for their languages, for their habits, for their customs, for their institutions. And um, yes, mm-hmm. and it, it ended in 1918. Yeah.
0: All of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at u.dallas.edu. Now, the, the the very durability of the Habsburg name is really proof of the value and truth of of the Habsburg way, in spite of what happened in in. in you know, in in 1914 or 1918, and that you derive uh, a set of principles, really of of rightness and and success from them. The first of the seven rules we've got seven rules. Marry and have kids, lots of them. Uh, now, uh, Ambassador House,
1: don't kids tie you down, man? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well. Ask me, Mark, I have six kids. Um, kids are the greatest gift you can give to yourself and your spouse. Many kids are the greatest gifts. And many kids, many siblings, is the greatest gift you can give to children. I can tell now with our youngest child being 15 and the eldest 26, that they are have a union that I very rarely see outside a closeness, a mm. love for each other, a looking after each other, a sense of humor. Even if we are spread over several countries, we always meet. Thank God to, um, that we, you have things like, like social social apps where you can talk to each other. Uh, when one of them is ill, uh, when we say our evening rosary, we will we will video call with our daughter who is uh, who is with flu in bed in in Austria, and we pray together. This is something incredible. Mm. This is the great. It is also the greatest. Um, counter-cultural thing you can do. Uh, Having a big family with many children automatically teaches your children all the values that uh, a solid and healthy society needs, a good democracy needs. You, You learn all those values around the dinner table. You learn all those values. You also have something like a fortress where neither woke ideas nor the state, nor anybody can put their wires in. You are you together, you can pass on your values. I very strongly insist on, on, on people being aware of their roots and their values and passing them on to their children. So this is a strong one. Get married and have lots of children. You don't have to be a Habsburg yeah. to do that.
0: Well, what you said about the family as a fortress sometimes makes me think that the left understands this in America, which is why they, they push so many of these woke policies that break families up. You know, that disengage kids from, or they discourage procreation.
1: Absolutely. Um, absolute.
0: And for each of the, yeah, for each of your rules, you you select examples from from the Habsburg line. What for this one? What made Maximilian, as you call him, the last knight?
1: Maximilian um, was the son of Frederick the Third and his wife, a Portuguese princess. She was a a dreamer, and she read books, and he was a very down-to-earth, stingy, and very dry person. And between these these two things, uh, Maximilian grew up, and in a time where knighthood chivalry and jousting and tournaments were a long time gone, he kept that alive, he was physically strong, he was very bright, he loved art, he was friends with Albrecht Dürer and with famous artists of his time, and... um, and he he wrote three autobiographies, pimped up autobiographies, where he, in a very fun way, describes his own life like uh, the, the the life of a knight, and and then and then mm-hmm. uh, things happened, and suddenly he got into the situation to to win the greatest princess of the world in a knightly way, in a real quest. It's incredible. He sat in in Wiener Neustadt, and he had been engaged for quite a while with the daughter of um, Charlotte Temeraire uh, Charles the Bold of Burgundy and um, his, his B- Charles the Bold and and Frederick III had agreed that their children should get married so they began writing each other very courteous letters of love and uh, and then suddenly Charles the Bold died in in a fight with the Swiss and and the young princess Mary of Burgundy brilliant very intelligent be- adorably beautiful Um, and very, very rich, very rich, Um, was suddenly helpless alone in Burgundy, and the French king set his armies in motion to force marry her to her son, who was 13 years old. And she wrote a letter Hmm. to Maximilian and said, come and save me. And uh, Maximilian Hmm. had no army. He had (coughs) his horse, his armor, a few friends, a few soldiers, and no money. So he left and he went down the Danube, uh, up the Danube, up the Danube, and the, the further he went, the more people joined his cause, because, of course, he was the son of the emperor, so it paid to be his friend. And more and more bishops and knights, etc. And in the end, he arrived in Ghent, very shortly before the French armies. They were immediately married off. And it was one of the greatest love stories of the century. They loved each other dearly. They spoke Latin when they got to know each other, because they didn't speak their languages. They read novels together. They rode mm-hmm. out hunting. And uh, most of all, they had two all-important children that were the basis of the entire Habsburg dynasty after that. Um, so that was, that was the, the beautiful story of the last knight. And um, if you today go to Innsbruck, uh, where, he, uh, where he died, and, um, and uh, you don't go to his tomb, but you go to the Cathedral of Innsbruck, and in the side chapel you will see a beautiful image of the devotion and of the knighthood of him. It's his favorite armor. His most elegant armor, hmm. and it is kneeling in a side chapel with hands with metal hands folded, looking towards the blessed sacrament. That was an instruction that Maximilian gave for this to be forever, as a sign of devotion for the people to i 've been there it 's still there it 's actually there, um, so that was a very knightly and grandiose gesture that was Maximilian I have to say he 's yep. one of my favorite Habsburgs. And he got quite far in the Habsburg Championship on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Speaking of children, how in the world was Maria Theresa able to bear 16 children and still be such an active and effective leader? Amazing. If
1: there ever was uh, a patron saint of managers manager and multitasking, that would be Maria Theresa. You have to imagine the pressure on yeah. her shoulders. She was, she was the last Habsburg. The Spanish line had died out in 1700. In 1720, more or less, it was clear that after having no children for 10 years, uh, her father, the emperor, um, uh, Charles VI, uh, had finally managed that they had two daughters. And that was it, in theory. But he went around through all of Europe, and he got the okay from all the rulers of Europe that she can carry on the family name by adding the name of her future husband. So she got married, it was a marriage of love, to Franz von Lothringen. And, and then if she hadn't had any children, that would have been it. But she had 16 children in 20 years of marriage. <laughs> and as she said once, uh, I would have, okay, j- just in parenthesis, as soon as she, as her father died, uh, several people attacked her countries, Frederick of Prussia attacked Silesia, and several others attacked Austria um, uh, and tr- putting in question so it was really game over for this girl that wasn 't even prepared because mm. the father didn 't count on dying like that and um, and then she showed, she showed what she was made of. she was a networker, she was a dancer, she went to parties, she played cards. She dropped babies left, right, and center, as they would say in in modern lingo. And she said once, "I would have ru- I would have been on the battlefield against uh, Frederick of Prussia myself if I wouldn't have been pregnant all the time." Um, but she was pregnant ah. for the future of the empire, and for and out of these many, many children, she built a, a network of relations all over Europe by marrying them off. She was really quite extraordinary and cheerful, very cheerful. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Rule number two says, "Oh, be Catholic," but that's not enough. You have to do it. What do you mean by doing Catholicism?
1: <laughs> yes, uh, you have to practice your faith. Uh, now, nowadays, some people say it's enough uh, to be Catholic to be called a devout Catholic. Um, I, I think that when you watch. Habsburg history, and you you look at the the single rulers and how they fared on the Catholic meter, you will see that the Habsburgs had ups and downs. Mostly ups, but a few very serious downs. Uh, One of the the moments where the Habsburg emperors didn't didn't really perform very well as Catholics were exactly the years of the Reformation and the beginning Counter-Reformation. Three consecutive Habsburg Hmm. emperors were Weak source to say the best possible way, but um, Maximilian II, for instance, the son of Ferdinand I, had a had a Luther Bible on his on his desk on his on his nightstand, and they say he didn't go to mass anymore after the first half of his of his reign, um, and declined confession and the sacraments on his deathbed. Now, is that Habsburg and Catholic? I'm not sure. Um, others. Others, uh, in those years, thank God, there were other Habsburgs. And the the Catholic faith still exists in Austria because of some of his uh, sisters and brothers. So when Maximilian was weak source, uh, a few of his, one of his sisters is Magdalena. I wrote about her uh, in First Things, um, uh, an article uh, about her, about her work in Counter-Reformation. and and then and one, one point that I always point out is the Habsburgs had lots of children. Uh, but between 1790, 1800 and 2000, so basically 200 years, the Habsburgs had no priestly vocation. The most Catholic family in the universe had not one priest. The first one after 200 years is my brother Paul, who is a priest. So, yes, Catholic, but yeah, you know? There were really ups and downs. Hmm. There were some emperors who really imbued what they did with their Catholic faith. The last emperor, of course, Blessed Carol. Um, Ferdinand II is a very interesting point in case. Um, In my book, I quote um, a passage from Kissinger's Diplomacy, where he speaks about Richelieu, who was a Catholic cardinal, probably devout, I hope. And Richelieu, as a Catholic, believed that uh, the reason of state, the raison de l'État allows for everything. You can make deals with the devil to help the state. While Ferdinand, who lived at the same time, wasn't ready to make small concessions to the Protestant princes in his realm because he was a Catholic and believed that he was responsible for their souls. And he couldn't. He once said famously, if I wouldn't care for them or love them, I would just let them remain in their error. But because I love them, I can't do this. And this is two very different ideas of Ruling or being a politician, it's not enough to have a, a, a Catholic baptism certificate. Your, your faith must, must shape your decisions. And unfortunately, we live in a time where I think this has happened after Kennedy made his famous speech before becoming president, when he more or less said that my Catholic faith will not influence my decisions as a president. Um, people nowadays think that your, your faith shouldn't, shouldn't be a part of your decision process. And that's wrong. It's very mm-hmm. wrong. It's very wrong. I totally disagree with that.
0: There's more. More rules to follow. that I And I agree with all of them. But the book for now is The Habsburg Way. Seven rules for turbulent times. Ambassador Habsburg, thank you for joining us. I had the most
1: us. wonderful time with you. Thank you very much.